0: Please follow along as I read to you God's word from Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 29. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 29. You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad, and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult, and only a few ever find it. Beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep, but are really vicious wolves. You can identify them by their fruit, that is, by the way they act. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A good tree produces good fruit, and a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. you who break God's laws. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish. Like a person who builds a house on sand, when the rains and floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers of religious law. God bless the reading of his word.
1: So this morning, we wrap up our series of messages from the Sermon on the Mount. We've gone through it, and we come this morning now to the last section in chapter 7, the last part of chapter 7, beginning at the 13th verse and through the end of the chapter. And if you have Bibles or an electronic uh, device that has the Scriptures on it, you might want to turn to it. The section that we're looking at this morning calls for some kind of a a decision or action. It's really uh, a a classic way of doing a sermon in that you give the information and you challenge along the way, and then you get to the conclusion. And at the conclusion, you really put the decision before the listeners or the readers. And that's what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's written a whole book on the Sermon on the Mount, says, this conclusion is not praise that Jesus desires, but it's practice. The Sermon on the Mount is not to be commended, it is to be carried out. The Sermon on the Mount not only informs us, but it challenges us to decide whether or not we will live by it and take action and make a decision to follow. So each one of us this morning have a decision to make. What will we do with what Jesus has taught us? How will we respond to his word? In this text, he uses several different ways of challenging us to decide. There's always the two sides of the thing that he begins to share with us. And uh, he begins, first of all, in that first section, verse 13 and 14, by saying, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Notice that there are two repeated many times. First of all, there's the two gates. Then there's the two paths. Then there's the two groups of people. And then there's two outcomes or two responses. So let's look at each one of those for a few moments this morning. A choice between two. Which one do you choose? How will you decide? There's the broad and the narrow way. We face this option in our lives. And the option that we choose determines our direction in life, and ultimately it leads to life's outcome, the broad way and the narrow way, the narrow gate and the wide gate. The narrow gate is the one that is recommended by Jesus, but it's a tight squeeze, a narrow gate perhaps with a low sill requires us to humble ourselves and to release hold on many of the things we'd like to take along jesus in another situation talks about the the eye of the needle and the camel having a very difficult time <clears throat> to go through the eye of the needle and he the, the eye of the needle is not a a literal eye of the needle. What it was was a very narrow, small door into the cities of those days. And so in a similar way, Jesus is saying, there's a narrow door from which you must walk if you're going to enter into the kingdom of God. It requires that we cannot carry a lot of luggage. We enter single file, on our knees. Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters in by me, they will be saved. So there's a choice. Are we willing to let go of a lot of things that we think are important to us? Are we willing to change our direction and to enter in by the narrow gate and enter in through Jesus Christ who says, I am the way? There's a narrow door and a wide door. Which do you choose? And then there's two paths. There's the broad path and the narrow path. A lot of cities have a street or an avenue called Broadway. When we lived in Vancouver, Vancouver has a street called Broadway. And uh, there's a church, very good church, on that street called Broadway Church. I always thought it was kind of awkward to have a church named Broadway that's preaching that the way of Christ is the narrow way. (laughs) The psalmist says, blessed is the man who does not walk in the way of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners. We're called to walk a narrow path. And then there are two groups of people There are the many who find the broad path through the wide door, and there are the few who go through the narrow door and walk the narrow path. You and I cannot follow the crowd and get into the kingdom. We must step out of the crowd and respond personally to the call of the Lord Jesus Christ on our life. There's an old spiritual that I'm sure you're familiar with. you got to walk that lonesome valley. you got to walk it by yourself. Oh, nobody else can walk it for you. You have to walk it by yourself. At the start of our Christian life, it's not about a group decision. It's about a personal decision that each one of us make. And that we're willing to make that decision and stand on our own. Think of Daniel back in the Old Testament. Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were pressured by culture to do certain things. But Daniel was willing to stand by himself against the culture. And we are called, if we are going to follow Jesus to heed the word of our Lord Jesus Christ, to listen to him, have our ears turned to him, and be able to tune out all of the other crowd noise that seeks to call us in another direction. And then there are two destinations. It says one is, leads to life and the other leads to destruction. There's a way That seems right to man, the Scripture says, but the end thereof is the way of death. What's your decision? What door are you going to go through? What path are you going to walk? Who are you going to listen to? Jesus is laying before us as the end of this sermon a key decision that each and every one of us are going to have to make which has a life-changing responsibility. And so in verses 13 and 14, he's talking about all these, one or the other. Then in verses 15 through 20, he changes the metaphor, and we now begin to look at two trees. But he starts, before he talks about the trees, he introduces the theme of a false prophet. Verse 19, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. It's no accident that Jesus begins to warn us about false prophets, immediately following on his teaching about the two doors, the two ways, the two crowds, and the two destinations. Because false prophets are very adept at blurring the clear-cut choice that stands before us. It can get muddy. It can get confusing. If we begin to listen to certain people rather than to listen to the voice of our Lord Jesus Christ, our good shepherd who is calling us as his sheep to follow him, it can become confusing to us, and we come away not knowing which direction to go, and we begin to question whether we're on the right path or not. And that's what happens when false prophets enter into the situation. Jesus says that false prophets or false teachers are like wolves in sheep's clothing. Uh, That image suggests two things. One, it suggests that false prophets are deceptive. In other words, they conceal their dark real purpose beneath a cloak of Christian piety or Christian religiosity, hoping that, This innocuous disguise will avert our uh, attention from the truth. Mark Twain used to talk about people who were good in the worst sense of the word. These are false teachers. He says, The devil succeeds in laying his cuckoo eggs in a pious nest. The sulfurous stench of hell is nothing compared to the evil odor Emitted by divine grace, gone putrid. False teachers will show up in situations where they can do damage. Not only are false prophets, false teachers deceptive, but according to the imagery that Jesus uses here, false prophets are dangerous. They are wolves, they want to destroy the flock. Paul warned the elders in Ephesus about false teachers in Acts chapter 20 and he says this Be shepherds of the church of God which he bought with his blood I know that after I leave savage wolves uh, will come and you will not and will not spare the flock Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning you, each of you day and night, with tears. What's the object of this false teacher? It is to draw people after themselves. But... Jesus says, false prophets can be discerned, can be discovered. In verses 16 through 20, he uses the interesting uh, imagery of the two different kinds of trees. He writes... There's no need for us to be heresy detectives. In time, those who are teaching and prophesying falsely will become obvious. The time of fruit-bearing is sure to come. Then we'll be able to sift the good from the bad. We will simply need to be waiting patiently, and eventually what is in the heart of false teachers and false prophets will be revealed. What is it that counts as this fruit? Perhaps there's a variety of things we can look for. First, fruit probably refers to the character and the behavior of an individual. It doesn't take long before you begin to recognize from the way in which they try to bring attention to themselves That they may be false teachers. Jesus is perhaps referring to what Paul called the fruit of the Spirit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Uh, These are the kinds of things that we anticipate coming from a true prophet and a true teacher. Fruit may be referring to the words of their teaching. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, and we can listen and discern. Fruit also may refer to the results in the lives of those who receive the teaching. If we find that those who are following become confused and begin to listen to the teacher more than listening to the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can begin to sense that there's false teaching. So Jesus says, when you make a decision about which path you're going to walk, what door you're going to go through. Listen to the voice of the good shepherd. Remember how Jesus said, when he used the analogy of the good shepherd, he says there are f- false hirelings who will come and try to lead you astray. As we move forward in the text, verse 21, he shifts from talking about false prophets to false professions. We read, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. It is possible to be self-deceived. It's not only false prophets who make the narrow way difficult to find and still harder to tread. A man may also be grievously self-deceived, saying, Lord, Lord, is not enough. Even if we make a special confession of faith, it gives us no title to any special claim on Jesus. We can never appeal to our confession or simply be saved on the ground that we have made it. The whole object, I think, of this paragraph is to warn us against the terrible danger of basing our assurance of salvation on the repetition of a certain amount of words or some sort of formula. Martin Lloyd-Jones refers to Luke chapter 6 where Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? And he's referring to Peter, where Peter says, Lord, Lord, and then he says, no, Lord, when Jesus talks to him about the crucifixion. And it's an oxymoron to say, Lord, Lord, and then not do what he says. Peter, don't use the words Lord and no in the same sentence. If you love me, you keep my commandments. Even performing of amazing deeds of supernatural proportion is not enough to assure us. In the Old Testament, the uh, magicians of Pharaoh were able to match many of the miracles that Moses and Aaron performed. The key criteria for entering into the kingdom of God is very clear here. At the end of the text, he says, Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. What does it take to get into the kingdom of heaven? Knowing him. Do you know him? Have you walked with him? Have you communed with him? That's the issue. That's what is at the crux of it. Finally, as he wraps up his sermon... He uses the image of two houses in verses 21 through 27. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain came down, the uh, streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone... Who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell in a great crash. I don't think he is referring here to eternal salvation. I think he's referring to a lifestyle that is uh, fulfilling, rich, and successful from a godly perspective versus one who does not. Uh, Frances Mays, who wrote the book Under the Tuscan Sun, uh, used the house. She said, the house is a metaphor for the self. There's a book that was written some years ago. It's called My My Heart, Christ's Home. And in it, it talked about the fact that every uh, room in the house was something where you would see, uh, invite the Lord Jesus. And then the question was, how much of the Lord Jesus have you invited into the various rooms in your house? Professing Christians often look alike. Both appear to be building Christian lives. Jesus is not contrasting here professing and non-professing individuals. He's contrasting two different kinds of professing individuals. They both, as the text says, hear these words of mine. Both are members of the visible Christian community. Both read the Bible, go to church, listen to sermons, buy Christian literature. The distinguishing feature is that one hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. The contrast is between two different kinds of foundation. The foundation of sand, which is shifting, temporal, unstable, and transitory. The other is the rock. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians three eleven, For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, the rock Christ Jesus. When we put our trust and confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ, the life that is built on that foundation can stand the test of it faces for time and eternity. But there's one other little interesting sidelight to the story of the two houses. And that is, there's a storm. The storm beats against both houses, the house on the foundation of rock and the house on the foundation of the sand. Only the storms of life reveal the truth about our foundation. As John Stott says, true piety is not fully distinguished from its counterfeit until it comes to the trials. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4 that we we deal with difficulties and hardships and it is through that that we began to sense the genuineness of our faith. It's in the storms of life that the true foundation of our lives are revealed. So as Jesus wraps up his sermon, he says, you've got to make a decision. How are you going to live your life? What path are you going to walk? Who are you going to listen to? And where is it going to take you? What path are you on? Does the genuine of life of Christ flow from within? Are you building your life on the firm foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the solid rock? What will be our response to the Sermon on the Mount? He concludes by the last two verses of this text. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught with one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. What authority do you give to the Lord Jesus? How do you see him? Do you see him as they did, as one who can claim rightfully the authority of your life? Like with Peter, don't call me Lord, Lord, and try to say no at the same time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for just uh, challenging us to make those decisions that are important, that will uh, impact where we end up. So we pray, Father, that we might hear and respond to your word. For it's in Christ's name we
0: pray. Amen.